when we were all together, it was like the biggest happy family ever. And we'd all be playing stupid games and we'd get on ridiculously well. And I've never had a warmer welcome anywhere than I have on The Crown. Happy Emmy Nominations Day, everyone. Welcome to EW's The Awardist, the podcast where we go deep on the Emmy Awards race and talk to your favorite nominees and frontrunners. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, and I'm here with my delightful colleague. Say hello. Hi, Jared Hall, senior TV editor at Entertainment Weekly. How are you, Kristen? What a day. What a day. It's already been like a jam-packed day and we're not even really uh, halfway through the day. But yeah, what a, a lot of surprising nominations. Yeah, some surprising ones. Some there were kind of like, what the heck surprising? But also some like huzzah surprises, which one I know you are really happy about. Oh, my God. Did I do a dance? Did I scream out loud when I saw Cobra Kai get nominated for Outstanding Comedy Series? I I very much did. I, I think I yelled, woo, really loudly in my living room. So I heard it from the opposite coast. I knew that was you. <laughs> what an exciting, exciting uh I mean, it really deserves it. It absolutely does. Yeah. A little bummed that the actors didn't get nominated, but we'll talk about the snubs, the surprises, all that. But yeah. certainly, you know, it was a very big day for uh, The Crown, which got 24 yeah. Emmy nominations. And later in this episode, we will be speaking to two of those nominees, Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin, Prince Charles and Princess Diana to you. So stay yeah. tuned for that a little bit uh, later in the show. So deserving. Their work is just fantastic in uh, in the fourth season that they're nominated for. And I cannot wait for that uh, conversation. Also with 24 nominations, which just wow, is The Mandalorian on Disney Plus. Uh, of course, a lot of technical awards for that show, but they did uh, get some, uh, you know, some acting uh, nominations as well, uh, like Giancarlo Esposito. Um, another Disney Plus series, WandaVision, 23 nominations. And they are kind of in the, you know, the same thing with Mandalorian, a lot of wow. technical stuff, but they actually have a lot more uh, acting nominees. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen, Paul Bettany, um, um, the amazing Catherine Hahn, uh, who I kind of think might be a front runner yes. in her category. Yeah. People would have rioted if she didn't get nominated. <laughs> right, right. And of course, Agatha All Along, that song also got nominated. How could it not? Um, three shows got more than 20 nominations, 21 for The Handmaid's Tale and Saturday Night Live. Of course, SNL is a, uh, you know, annual, like, Gets sure. many, many nominations. And then uh, Ted Lasso coming in hot with 20 nominations. And unlike those other shows where a lot of them had their uh, nominations, you know, in the technical categories, for Ted Lasso, a lot of those are in the acting categories. So many of the talent, they received the great news today. It's so exciting. You know, of course, Hannah Waddingham and Juno mm -hmm. Temple and Jason Sudeikis. And then you've got your Jeremy Swifts and your Brendan Hunts and your Brett Goldsteins yeah. and your Nick Mohammed. It's just a lot yeah. of great. I mean, it's such a great cast. It's I, I was worried, certainly, that they could cancel each other out, yeah. especially yeah. in that supporting actor category. But they did mm -hmm. not. So that's now, you know, it'll somebody's going to have to lose when it comes to the actual uh, ceremony. Yeah. But it's so great to see all of them recognized. 
Yeah, they're so great. It's just, uh, you know, so many times we've talked about here, it's just such a, a, a beautiful, heartwarming show, but actually has a lot of depth to it, especially, you know, in the, in the character exploration that we saw within that first season. And season two is coming up, uh, which might play to their advantage when voting happens because mm-hmm. the new season starts July 23rd and uh, voting starts in August. So that might uh, that might work out well for them. We will exactly. certainly see. Yeah. Also got to talk about some of the double nominees. Of course, some of them uh, from Ted Lasso are double because they're actors and they're producers on the show, like Jason Sudeikis or uh, as poor Jasmine Cephas Jones pronounced it, Sudukis or something like that. Uh, I loved it. Oh, my God. Yes. The the pronunciations (laughs) this morning. First of all, totally adorable father and daughter duo, but like nobody could give them a five minute tutorial. Uh, it was Adi Bryant at one point, I yeah. believe, and uh, Ann Taylor-Joy instead of yes. Anya Taylor. Like, there were, there yeah. were, look, I can't say that I wouldn't do worse on live television announcing names, but I, I would have, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just wish that somebody had given them a, a crash course. Anyway, that's 100%. not the point. Uh, you're yeah, talking little double tangent. nominees. No, but you know, it's interesting, though. I, I've heard a lot of people say that they get more nervous to present at award shows and to do this stuff than they get to do their actual jobs, which I just find so fascinating. It's and I'm sure so there's funny. Yeah, there's some psychology to that. But yeah, double nominees. So Jason Sudeikis, uh, Jason Sudeikis, of course, and um, uh, Brendan Hunt, um, Michaela Cole, also a double nominee for, uh, you know, her, her yes. fantastic performance. And I May Destroy You and also producing that. But several others we should note here. Gene Smart, lead actress in a comedy yes. for Hacks and supporting actress in a drama for, uh, or uh, sorry, limited series limited for series. Mayor of mm-hmm. Easttown. Uh, A.D. Bryant, who you said there, lead actress in a comedy for Shrill, supporting actress in a comedy for SNL. Kenan Thompson, lead actor in a comedy for Kenan and supporting actor in a comedy series for SNL. Maya Rudolph also got two, uh, mm-hmm. kind of same as last year, guest host for uh, SNL and then voiceover performance for Big Mouth and Sterling K. Brown for uh, This Is Us and uh, for his narration work on uh, the CNN special Lincoln Divided We Stand uh, Jean Smart. I mean, it's her year. It's her time. I mean, We're living I'm so in. For her. Yeah, it's her time. Me too. It is the year of Jean. I feel like in this case, she's probably going to win both. Um, in terms of the other double nominees, I really, I'm not surprised that Keenan got nominated for SNL. I really think the goodwill toward him, people just love him went toward his nomination for Keenan because I just don't think that's the show that's really on anyone's radar. It did get renewed for season two. And by all accounts, you know, it's starting to find its footing, but I think people just love him so freaking much that they were uh, willing to give him a nomination for that show. And, you know, I'm not mad at that. I love him. Yeah, I, I I like so many. I love him so much. And the real shame here is that he has never won for performing before. He's long overdue. So right. I would love to see him get some love. Uh, someone else who got some love today. And I'm not going to lie. I was a little nervous and worried about this one, but so happy to see MJ Rodriguez nominated yes. for lead actress in the dramedy for Pose. She made history with that nomination as the first transgender actress to get a lead acting nomination. Uh, I, I think it's very well deserved. Me too. I've got to say, like, she is one of those performers who she's really authentic and raw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, the her 
performance has grown so much since season one. And I know it's only been two seasons, but she was, you know, a little sort of unsure of herself, a little stiff in season one. By season Mm -hmm. three, she owned that character. And every time Blanca went into like a pep talk, like a, we're family, we've got to do it together. I was like, yeah, that's right. I love her. (laughs) And like, just, she was the anchor. And oh God, so great. So happy for her. Um, and for Pose and, you yeah. know, that whole, uh, that show had a great uh, nomination day as well. So, yeah, that was a real, like, it was something we hoped for, but you're right. right. I was nervous too. So I'm so glad that it happened. I don't want to say it was a surprise because, right. you know, she was in the mix the whole time, totally. but I was really worried that it wouldn't, she wouldn't make it right over the finish line. Mm-hmm. So what a well-deserved. Absolutely. hundred percent. But let's do talk about some of those surprises because um i think uh i think there is one show in particular that when it was announced that uh you know all of us here at ew as i'm sure is the you know the case with many places we were on slack chatting as the nominations were happening and i maybe didn't see (laughs) i don't recall as much what wtf commentary as when this show was announced Shall I give you a drum roll and you announce it? Sure, yes. <laughs> and that show was Emily in Paris. What? I'm... For a second, I was like, did we time travel back to, you know, January and this is the Golden Globes? What is going on? Yeah. Um, really, really shocking with that one. Uh, in part because... You know, look, I'm saying this as somebody who gave the show a B. I mm-hmm. watched every episode. Same. Um, yeah. It is not a good show in any way, shape, or form. It is entertaining in yes. a lot of ways, but it is not good. So to see it up against, you know, comedies like Hacks mm-hmm. or Pen 15 that are incredibly original yeah. and entertaining, Blackish, mm-hmm. uh, you know, attendance. it was yeah. really shocking. Ted, Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso yeah, yeah, it was really shocking. I'm still coming to terms with it, Jared, but I do think what I will say is that unlike with the Golden Globes where like Emily in Paris got a nomination over, for example, I May Destroy You, which, you know, was insane. Uh, In this case, because, you know, I May Destroy You was recognized in another category. And there wasn't something that was other than like Girls 5 Eva, maybe Mm -hmm. Dickinson. Those were ones where I was like a little surprised that I got it over those. I will say yeah. I do think Emily and Paris served a purpose at a very specific, vulnerable time for us as a as a people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, October 2020, first several months of the pandemic, we all needed its stu- yeah. uh, its stupidity deeply, and mm-hmm. and it entertained us at that time. So very true. Uh, yeah, I. I'd, I I have no logical explanation for it, but I think you uh, I think you summed it up there pretty well. <laughs> there were a couple shows that I, I guess we call them snubs. They were, you know, we were really rooting for them, not really sure they were going to make the cut, like Desus and Marrow, um, yeah. like, um, well, even, even Seth Meyers, we were kind of hoping um, would get in yes. there. Um, Sarah Paulson is an Academy favorite. She did not get nominated for Ratched. She was uh, kind of on the cusp with a lot of, you know, uh, experts and, and uh, you know, odds makers. But um, really, I don't think there's a, a, a big egregious, holy cow, how did they overlook this person? I mean, Small Axe didn't really get many nominations, uh, nor did Underground Railroad. Lovecraft Country, which has been canceled, got a lot of nominations, so very happy for them. Right? Yeah. And I was happy to see Pen15 in the comedy yeah. category. Of course, we talked about Cobra Kai. 
you know, I was a little surprised at some of that acting. Uh, like we didn't John Benjamin Hickey for yeah. in treatment. He was really good. Uzu Aduba got nominated. Mm-hmm. The show did not get nominated, which is interesting. Um, you know, but yeah, there wasn't the one that I thought was sort of a sure thing. Ethan Hawke for the good Lord bird uh, limited series. Yeah. That was surprising to me. Um but like you said, there really wasn't one where it was just like, for example, had Gene mm, Smart, Smart not been yeah. nominated for Hacks or for Mayor of Easttown, that mm-hmm. would have been egregious. Let's march with our pitchforks and our uh-huh. torches. Um, but there wasn't, to me, I don't feel like there was a nomination that was or a, a snub that was that egregious. Yeah, could not agree more. I, I think it's a it's a really uh, nice mix of nominees this year. It feels like the Academy tried to give love to a lot of people, uh, a lot of shows in a lot of uh, areas. And um, I, I, all in all, I think I'm pleased by the general outcome. Uh, I, maybe yeah, if we like added nice. like one or two more nominees in a couple categories, that would, uh, you know, yeah. satisfy everyone. But here we are. Yeah, I'm not like... I'm not seething with rage, you know, I'm bummed about William Zabka and Ralph Macchio, but yeah. at least Cobra Kai was nominated. You know, like mm-hmm. for everything that's like a bummer, I feel like there's a, a positive uh, thing on the other side to balance it out. It'll be interesting. This is going to be, you know, allegedly Knockwood, an in-person award show yeah. hosted by Cedric the Entertainer. Son, Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah. So, sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. He's, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's in his name. He is an entertainer, so we will see what he does uh, come September nineteenth. But I mean, it, it makes sense. The uh, the show, the Emmys are on CBS, and he is star of CBS's uh, The Neighborhood. And by the way, one other thing I want to make note of: uh, how at last year's Emmys, Schitt's Creek swept those top seven categories in the uh, on the comedy side. There is the potential for another show to do that this year on the drama side. That would be The Crown. Can they do it? I don't know. I think their chances are pretty good. I think they are too. It was an excellent season, you know, mm-hmm. one of the best. And, uh, you know, they pretty much everyone we hoped would get nominated did. So obviously mm-hmm. voters are really behind it. I think there's a good shot. It, uh, You know, who can say between now and then? But uh, I will say that it was very delightful to speak to two of those stars, mm-hmm. uh, Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin, uh, about this season and their incredible performances as Charles and Diana, like some very emotional and intense and brutal, mm-hmm. ugh, just such a yeah. such a roller coaster, but I, they're both so great. So please enjoy my conversation with these two freshly minted Emmy nominees right after the break. Welcome back to The Awardist. Please enjoy my interview with Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for having us. It's so much of fun. Course. Of course. So, Emma, you know, a lot of people have said your performance is Diana, from her voice to her look to her mannerisms, you know, it was just so uncanny. Can you tell us a little bit about how you prepared? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, to begin with, it was very much um, research-based. The Crown have an incredible research team, and they worked to put together a binder which was broken up into information relevant to each episode. 
So uh, that was incredibly helpful because it made the research very specific to the scripts and to the story we were telling. And I'd initially got quite overwhelmed by the amount of stuff there is, information out there on Diana that there is to access. And I found it very hard to know what I would use to actually help my character. And of course, once I got the scripts and I saw the story that Peter that we were telling through Peter's writing and actually that, you know, this was going to be my version of Diana, that as much as it is based on a real person, it is, you know, the same for Josh with Charles, it's our creation of this character from the right. page. And um, that really helped. And then also when I started working with Polly Bennett, who is was our movement and character coach, I suppose. And we just had so much fun. We had this, this studio, um, which we like worked in and together and we just spent days just like being in this space and trying out different mannerisms and different ways of walking around and holding the ways I would hold myself and anytime we came across something like you know how are we going to differ young Diana in the first first few episodes to older Diana by like posture and stuff we would think okay is that something we want to bring into the character and if so if we want to in the first few episodes make her more coy with her head bowed mm-hmm. a bit and her shoulders hunched a bit because she's shyer and younger then we needed to we wanted to justify why we were making those choices so then it would sort of go from physical characteristics and mannerisms decisions about those and then we'd sort of justify those and pack those out and work from the inside out with making like choices about why and psychologically what did that mean was mm-hmm. it like that she was actually shy was it that she were, felt the pressure of like the public gaze suddenly and that she felt out of place you know all these things and that was right. so much fun and it's kind of I know like for me as an actor that's the bit that I love the most yeah and Josh, you know, obviously you played Charles in season three, and I read that in season four you decided to change your posture a little bit, almost to like show the weight of the world on on Charles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Emma's, again, Emma's like hit the nail on the head, really. It's not, I, I suppose both Emma and I, I mean, we, we have quite similar approaches, and that's purely, I think that's just by chance. And But I think in terms of, both of our approaches to our characters and attitudes towards these roles have been how can I t- how can you take it beyond a a like a mimic, which is you know it's like for all the kind of praise that, that Emma and I get for like um, or you know particularly Emma you know the people coming to, you know who talk to me and they're like yeah like Emma Corrin is just like Diana and like, well, she's not I mean she's she's acting so it's like that, that's because she's really good. But also, it's not that, like, what people are finding affecting about Emma's performance, and hopefully mine, and, and uh, I think same with Gillian and Olivia and Tobias and Helena, and generally on the ground, is that you, you take an essence of a character, and then you try and build something that feels fiction, that is fictional, that is mm-hmm. completely unique, and gives a new perspective on an mm-hmm. essence of a real person. And so... With the Charles thing, it was like, well, he does have a kind of hunch. Like, he has this weird sort of hunch. But it was like, in the same way as with a character, it's like, for instance, on the job I'm doing at the moment, it's like, I can't just go, like, I can't just take, take on a character and go like, oh, he has a twitch. It's like, <laughs> for sure, like, if you're doing some sort of, like, weird genre film, then fine, a twitch is a twitch. But, like, I guess it's got to be, it has to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so... For me, it was like, oh, I, you know, I observed that Charles has this hunch in the same way as I'm sure Emma probably observed, like, oh, Diana does this head tilt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, but rather than just go, I'm going to do that head tilt, or I'm just going to do this 
arched over the body. It's like, well, where does that come from? Right. And I know that Emma has her own answer for that. But for me, the arched body just felt to me like, well, it coincides with this idea. Yes, it coincides with being older, but also it coincides with the pressure of like every, every year his mother's still alive. He's still not king and is still in waiting. He's in the wings. And and every year he's married to Diana, it's a year away from Camilla, for instance. You know, right. all these things felt like a wait. And so, yeah, it just sort of, I guess it came from there. Yeah. And one of the first moments in the season where we really see what's in store for Diana is when she arrives and she has to curtsy to everyone in order. And it's, it's such a stressful scene to watch. Uh, Emma, was that stressful to play? I mean, really, no. It was quite a struggle on those days when we were all there to actually remember that, like, to take a beat and be like, okay, no, I have to be, I'm incredibly uncomfortable amongst these people. I'm hoping to be welcomed. And I'm actually, I feel very much like an outsider, but purposely made an outsider. And it was, to be honest, the exact opposite in the room, because when we were all together, it was like the biggest happy family ever. And we'd all be playing stupid games and we'd get on ridiculously well. And I've never had a warmer welcome anywhere than I have on the crown. <laughs> it couldn't be more different. Um, but actually saying that, uh, you are also simultaneously amongst those actors who are so good at what they do. And so actually when they shout action in those few beats before, when everyone's sort of diving back into their characters in the scene, everyone's just on and it's like a switch and it's always a wonderful wonderful blessing to act opposite people who are so generous and yeah even though some of that scene was like we filmed it with the camera that was like went round on a thing right and even though for that bit when they were getting my reaction to feeling uncomfortable none of the others were on camera it was that thing where they were all creating that environment and all working together so to help me to be able to feel those things i needed to feel and that's like a that's wonderful yeah that's nice. So th- their warm welcome still helped you feel nervous. <laughs> <laughs> they were so great that I felt really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, you know, as I mentioned, this was a really a, a anticipated season. Was there, after you finished, was there a scene or a moment from this season that you were most excited or nervous about people seeing? Emma and I had these sort of like we had such a such a buzz like making this and so yeah but I also think because the way it ended we were I mean we we were so fortunate we managed to get pretty much everything shot before the pandemic but we missed out on there was a week that we missed and the week was um in episode nine um, is it nine uh which is the avalanche episode there was this sequence of the avalanche which obviously they brilliantly covered up with found footage right. where um, Charles is involved in this avalanche and there were these kind of arguments. And I was really looking forward to doing those scenes because it felt like the final jigsaw piece. Yeah. Um, but because of that, I think because we went into um, isolation and everything, it locked down. It just felt like maybe I didn't have properly the time to settle. But I remember there was one scene that I was like, I just want to know it's okay. And the reason I wanted to know it's okay was because when we rehearsed it, it was, in my eyes, it was one of the first things Emma and I did together. And I was just like, damn, she's good. And also just also just like the, the, what we were doing. <laughs> and it, not to like, I guess it was just, it just felt really good. Like we'd done this amazing scene. And it was the scene in Australia uh, where they have this big, their first uh, confrontation. conversation, yeah. At the ranch yeah. in New Zealand. At the ranch, yeah. And, the, the prob- and Emma will tell you, the problem was that on the day, 
It was all great. We did this amazing rehearsal. Oh, Everyone was clapping. Flies. It was a really exciting thing. And then there were these flies. So like, Emma, Emma, we did Emma's coverage. She nailed it. And then the camera turned around and it was like, the flies were out to get me. It was like, they, they had enough. They were like, and, every, <laughs> and Emma would, like, honestly, Emma can back me up on this. It's, it's true, isn't it, Emma? That every time I open my mouth, like that or that like in my mouth like in my eye josh is a very josh is very measured you're a very measured person josh and you've never you're always wonderful no matter if you're having a bad day or whatever and obviously we all do and everyone still just gets on with their jobs you know it's just what humans do yeah. but i have I never that. seen you close to cracking unless till that day and i was just like because we kept doing takes and we'd be and also it's a long scene it's a lot of dialogue yeah it's sitting opposite each other at that table on the veranda and I'm like, well, I feel undervalued and unappreciated. And you're like, you feel undervalued and unappreciated. And there was just these be these flies that would land like on Josh's eye or on his <laughs> nose. And we, I just be watching this happening. My face is like frozen in terror. Like, I don't know what do we do. We carry on, and I can see Josh just like struggling to, to do the scene, knowing there were like five flies sitting on his face. <laughs> oh, I, it was a masterclass, Kristen. It was a masterclass, Josh. You were amazing. Oh <laughs> anyway, it worked out well and it looks great and I'm really happy with it. But yeah, that was mm. definitely You were brilliant. Oh my gosh. Um well you were both uh, you know, obviously very young when Princess Diana died in nineteen ninety-seven. As you learned about her life with Prince Charles during the course of making the show, was there anything what surprised you the most about their life together? I think I was surprised. And again, it's it's really, it's a tricky one. And it sounds like I'm sort of dodging the question, but I'm not, I promise I'm not. Um, I, obviously, the world we are creating is fictional. And so mm. I didn't, I personally didn't spend too much time, you know, I watched a couple of documentaries and that brilliant documentary that I know Emma watched a lot of on Netflix. In her own words, so good. Yeah, yeah, great. And I watched a bit of that. So good. But actually, a lot of the time I was just like, that's all great, that's all there. But what's what's our story about? And so one of the surprises I found, and again, the reason I say one of the surprises I found in our fictionalized world is because I have no idea if this is true in real life. I think it is, but that's irrelevant. Um, the surprise I found is how much love there was. Yeah. And like and love that Emma and I played in that story. And uh, even at the end, like I, I know that people kind of cite that scene where we're at, at each other's necks in episode 10, where it's like, I refuse any longer to be blamed for this grotesque mm. But those moments are like, they're big moments and there's a, there's a lot of anger and resentment there. But I yeah. still, honestly still think there's loads of love there. And I think it's because because there's so much love for Diana from Charles and because Di Diana loves Charles, because that's there, that's why it's so horrible and painful and that's why we right. feel so close. So that was my, I don't know what you think, Anne, but that was a big surprise to me. No, I agree. I think I was surprised at the length of time they made it work for given mm -hmm. the, the situation as it is generally conceived to be that he was in love with someone else and the weight and pressure of the royal family was so suffocating to both of them that it would have been impossible even to probably have any kind of relationship with anyone in those circumstances is I think probably like has doesn't have good odds of surviving so I was surprised at sort of the amount of yeah, the amount of time they spent trying to make it work. Right. The, as Josh said, the love that was there and the bond I think they had with their children and yeah. with that kind mm -hmm. of like 
Yeah, and the, it was a very, I remember Peter talking to us about that, those 20 minutes of, in, I think he called it the 20 minutes of happiness, didn't he, Josh? <laughs> or something in, the, in episode six where they make it work. And he was like, your job is to make the audience really believe that this could work. Because he said at that moment, they did. They did. This right. was exactly yeah. everything they wanted. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the sad thing, that if it hadn't been for all the extenuating circumstances, this probably could have worked. And I always mm -hmm. found it interesting that, at least in our story, this couple were able to have the first mature, open, productive conversation of their marriage when they were in the middle of nowhere on their own on a ranch in New Zealand. Like they had to be in the in the desert right. to be able to actually have the space to be like, oh, hi, you're a human with feelings. I'm a human with feelings. Should we talk about that? That's, <laughs> nice. That's such a good point. I'd never really yeah. thought of it, but it is the fact that they're like, it's the only time something, there's no one else around. The whole series. No one else around, yeah. yeah. I think it was impossible. I think they were put into an impossible situation and they had to do their utmost and their best and they did. And I just think it's very telling that, yeah, the happiest you see them is when they are out from under the pressure of the royal family. Right. So Josh, one of the most extraordinary things about your performance is that as a viewer, you know, you get so mad at Charles, he's so awful at times and you're just so mad. But at the same time, as a viewer, you feel this immense sympathy for him. Mm. Uh, it's a very strange feeling, but it happens at once. How challenging was it for you as a performer to maintain that balance? Well, I think I think I had to. I was really fortunate to have season three, and I, uh, you know, I know I only had three episodes in season three, but it was. I mean, for me, that was the kind of the only way it could have worked, really, because it's it very quickly descends into, you know, he becomes a very difficult character in season four, and I think what season three allowed was for me to tell, you know, first of all, season two, the brilliant lad who played young Charles was terrific. And that episode of Gordonston that Stephen Daldry made was amazing. Yeah. And that, that sort of lay a paved stone for this storyline. But I think then in season three, being able to tell the story of the early days of Camilla and not being able to be with the woman he loves, like, you know, we all feel sympathy for that. The investiture episode, I think, was really handy in telling that story. And so... I felt comfortable going into season four in the knowledge that people were on side with Charles. And it was like, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the press for season, I always joke about, you know, a lot of the press for season three, the same journalists I was talking to at the end of season three were like, oh, poor Charles, when you're so lovely. And then now they're like, I, I hate you. Which <laughs> is like, sort of, I guess, a testament to what we did. But, but I think but I, that was the kind of, I guess that was the interest in taking on the role. And I think if it weren't for season three, uh, that might have been a, a far harder task, to be honest. Right, right. So we have to talk about the lunch scene between Diana and Camilla, mm. played by Emerald Fennel, and in episode three. And I read that the director, Benjamin Karen, had Josh come at one point and sit there during rehearsal. Can we discuss this, Emma? Yeah. What was that like? We had this really outlandish rehearsal where Ben was like, okay, Emerald, like, come in, are you going to run the lines at, across from his table? And they bought loads of, like, M&S desserts, I remember, that we had to, like, feed each other or feed you at one point or something. And then Josh was there and Josh sat down and he, the game was that, always a game, always a game. Uh, the game was that whoever felt they had 
the power at that moment during the scene had to take Josh's hand and you had you could let it go when you felt like you lost the power. That's right. I'm pretty sure I didn't have a hand for a lot of it. But then there was a bit at the end where I got a hand. Was that the only thing? And then... There were a few... I think there were a couple of games, but I remember, and this point, I'll bow out of this conversation in a sec because this is... There's a lot of, like, more interesting stuff when I left the room, I remember. But where I, I was there for the beginning of the rehearsal and, and basically we did the hand thing. But I really yeah. didn't know how to be because I was like, am I, like, the ghost of Charles? Or, like, am I here? Or am I Josh? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And I was like, can I eat some of these desserts? Because they look delicious. Anyway. But Emma, it helps because it brought into like the forefront of me and Emerald's mind the entire time we're doing the scene, the unspoken presence of Charles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. The whole conversation is a tiptoeing around, well, for Emerald, it's very like, sussing out who her competition is now really who this person is who she's going to have to navigate her emotional life around because I'm part of this three now I suppose and right. then for Diana it was slowly coming around to the fact that this isn't a person in a very significant person more significant than she, she thought and also I just I just for me it was just like Emerald slowly weeing all over her territory of <laughs> Camilla was slowly weeing all over her territory of um Charles <laughs> That's a horrifying thought. The scene, the scene could have been very different. Could have been very different. But it was, it was just a bit when she's like, what does she call you? Fred or something. And she's like, oh, um, classic Fred. Yeah. And I'm like, who the fuck is Fred? And I'm like, oh, that's just, who? Fred? No one. It's just Charles. Don't worry about it. I'm in love with him. Don't worry about it. Um, it's horrible. Yeah. But it was fun to do. What a scene. It was so much fun. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. Seeing Emma so and Emma just like flash of the titans. It's so My good. favorite bit is when Diana like is actually like, right, that's it. And she like bites back a bit, being like, Well, yeah. actually I'm going to paint the house. So yeah. that's ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah. Exactly. Emma, I read that uh you had worked with the writers to make sure that the scenes of Diana's uh disordered eating, her bulimia were, you know, really handled with care and context. Can you talk about why that was so important to you? Um, for a number of reasons. One of them being that I just think that if these things are going to be shown on screen, anything to do with mental health and eating disorders, like believe me that it's done well and mm -hmm. does justice to the experience and anyone who's affected by it and also so that we learn about it. Also because I realized how much of because Diana talks about it very freely. First of all, Diana talks about it very freely at the time. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of interviews, she addresses it. And I think that was incredibly, I mean, we're still, there's still a huge fight to, for people to open up and to be more vocal about these experiences so that we're all more aware of them and can help each other and also feel less isolated in them. Like mm -hmm. nowadays, and back in those days, I think that it was not done at all that you really spoke about these things. And she did right. very explicitly, which is amazing. And so I felt like I would, I should we should do her justice in that way and what she experienced and also listening to how she talked about her struggle with bulimia and how it affected her in those crucial moments in her life and throughout that period of her life I felt that you couldn't really tell the rest of the story we were telling without including it because it feeds into it if you're going through something like that as I think it is with a lot of 
struggles with mental health, it bleeds into everything you do in everyday life, whether you can right. get up in the morning, how you act when you're out with people or how you interact with the person you're involved with or your friends or your family or your children. So I was suddenly like, wow, this has to be at the center of her. It kind of fed into every scene I did, every scene. It was right. just, it affected, it affects a lot of everything. And so I right. wanted to, yeah, include it for that reason as well. And uh, finally, you know, so many people have asked you, you know, about the pressures of playing an icon, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the flip side of that, which is the, I would imagine there's some excitement at getting to play a character who embodies sort of what we might imagine the human side of that icon, you know, and uh, a human being who that person could have been behind the public image. You know, uh, Josh, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I can't. I don't know if Charles. Can we count Charles as an icon? <laughs> not in the same. It's not in the same way as Diana. But I mean, he's in in the sense that he's a very powerful, right. famous person. But I guess, um, yeah. I mean, that's to me. That's the only. I mean, that's the that's the big kind of pull. Perhaps the only, not the only pull, but that's the big pull really to playing something like this is that I haven't hidden like that I'm a big old socialist Republican. So like, that's not news to anyone. Um, but as individuals, I think it's a huge, like there's a philosophical catch 22 that exists in the Royal family. And I go back to it, something that I quote all the time, but it's actually not my own quote. It's, uh, it's Peter Morgan, which is that in season three, the episode Dangling Man, where mm. Charles compares himself to school, uh, a character in a Saul Bellow novel, who's waiting to be drafted to go to war, his certain death, and he wants to be drafted because it will give his life meaning. Right. And in the same way, Charles, is he's living in a constant state of purgatory. He's on hold. He's basically waiting for his mother to die for his life to begin. And that's a yeah, insane right. kind of conflict. And so I suppose bringing life to a famous face or someone who is seemingly characterless because we don't know him is interesting. Mm -hmm. And for you, Emma, you know, obviously you're playing a, a fictionalized version of this woman that everyone loves, but you get to bring a story to life about her. What was that like? It was such an honor to do that. I mean, also, I just, the more I sat in the midst of all the assumptions made about her, and even in the story we're telling, all the pressure and the noise, the press and really how it destroyed a lot of what could have been so wonderful about her life. It made me sort of angry at it. And so I had this real fire to really go behind and capture something intensely human and intensely relatable. So that almost this icon thing would be completely dissolved. And what people would see was someone who they would think, oh, like, I see that. I see her. And I see what she was feeling and I felt that and wow this is a couple who are working out a marriage like any other couple would work out a marriage and everything that that entails right and there was sort of a real joy almost in bringing I think for us both bringing these icons these people to our smaller scale to our tiny little stage of yeah creating human stories and I think Peter's writing is wonderful at doing that as well I think that's why what he did, I think, especially in the first season, I remember watching the first season and seeing what Claire and Matt did and thinking, oh my gosh, I've never felt like I could probably relate to these people who 
mm. are so emblematic of things and so like in our lives in such a big way. And actually, this is sort of reading as a, as very human stories and very interesting. Like I'm very interested in the emotion that they're going through. And wow, this insane pressure of this. And well, oh, isn't she going to talk to him about it? And oh my god, he assumed that she did this, and now what's going to happen to them? And that you know, yeah, this and families and what it says about families and mothers and sons and the need for acceptance and and the need for belonging. I think a big thing for both Charles and Diana that we really discovered was that they both felt the need to be loved and both felt the need to belong in a way that they sort of been deprived of in their own families maybe but right. the way that they their marriages were doomed to fail because they were both seeking that meaning they could never provide that to the other one um yeah uh, yes it does really bring these these figures down to earth in a way that you can just empathize with them in a in a wonderful way. Well, it has been such a delight talking to both of you. I really appreciate your time. Congratulations on the season and uh, all the best in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, Kristen, I gotta say, I know you've done a lot of fantastic interviews in your day, but that one might be a crowning achievement. Thanks. That's just what I wanted from you, Jared. Terrible pun. Thank you. It was so delightful to speak to them. Uh, And I think, you know, they've got a great, uh, hopefully a little bit more in-person Emmy campaign season ahead of them. You know, they've been for Golden Globes and everything. It's all been remote, but God willing, uh, you know, we'll all be able to start getting together and uh, in, in future. And I'm excited to see how the race changes over the coming weeks. Yeah, I think it's drastically going to change. I mean, those two, like they, you know, they have incredible stories from their experience here. Uh, Just hearing all of that was uh, really enlightening. Uh, I I love those kinds of behind the scenes stories. Uh, And, you know, so many others, so many other nominees have uh, lots of great stories to tell, too. This will be really when, uh, you know, the great anecdotes come out (laughs) um, from from their, uh, you know, times on set. So we're, of course, going to have a lot more of those here on the Awardist podcast uh, over the next several weeks. So be sure to tune in each week for our interviews and our analysis. Uh, You can check us out, uh, of course, also on EW.com. And be sure to follow, subscribe, like, all that good stuff so you don't miss an episode. Uh, And I am on Twitter. You can follow me there at Jared Hall. Kristen, you should definitely be following if you're not. Kristen, you are at Kristen G. Baldwin, and I hope you like The Bachelor, because I tweet about that a lot as well. (laughs) Not nominated. Didn't get nominated, by the way. sure did not. Sure did not. But lots of other nominees. We have lots of great analysis online, uh, so be sure to check all of that out. And we will see all of you next week right back here on The Awardist. 